0: Acts 10. We are in Acts 10 this week. Uh, Two weeks back, we were um, in the beginning of Acts chapter 10, where we left our study in the home of Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius, he was a Roman centurion, and while he was praying, he received a a message from God to send some men to bring back Simon Peter, the apostle. Peter along the same time, also received a message from God while in prayer, um, to go to visit these men. And um, there Peter is at Cornelius' home, and Cornelius says to Peter, Okay, Peter, we're here. Now tell us what God knows we we need to know. Cornelius was a man who was ready for salvation. He was a man who was ready to to hear the Scriptures. And um, as we came to verse 34... We come to the the sermon that that Peter is preaching, and that's where we are this morning. It's a very simple sermon. It's the first message ever preached by an apostle to the, the Gentiles. And now, like all the sermons that Peter preached, it has three parts. It has an introduction, it has a main theme, and it has a conclusion. And I'll be following that pattern in my outline this morning. Uh, But this is a message that opened the door of salvation to all of the people of the world. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And that's a sermon that we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you would go with me, please, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, we will be reading from verse 34 to verse 48, the the sermon that Peter preaches to the household of Cornelius. Then they asked Him to remain for some days. Well, let's pray and ask God's blessings on His Word before we dig in this morning. Father, we do want to pray for Your help today as we study Your Word. We are thankful that we can sing songs, Lord, that extol Your name. We are thankful, Lord, we can read Your Word this morning that reminds us of Your character We thank you we can pray prayers adoring you today. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray for your help as we hear your word that you have given to us today. We pray for your spirit to teach us. We pray, Lord, that he would convict us of sin. We pray, Lord, that he would open our eyes to our need for the gospel on a daily basis. And if there are people here today that haven't been saved, Lord, who don't know the gospel, who've never Repented of their sins, never been born again, I pray that the Spirit of God would work in their hearts and bring them to salvation today, Lord. So Father, we ask that you would do your work amongst us and help us to be grateful and thankful for your great love for us in sending Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I've asked this question before, but um, please allow me to, to ask it again. If you were in an elevator and you just had, had a minute to get to um, the floor that you were going to, and there was an unbeliever in the elevator with you, and um, he asked you, What do I need to be saved? What do I need to do to be born again? And you had one minute to answer that question. What would be your answer? What would be your answer? Well, I think among professing Christians, there are different answers to that very, very important question. It's a crucial question. Life is short um, and eternity is long. So we need to know the answer to that important question. Now, there are people who think that, well, if a person is just sincere, it doesn't really matter what he believes, because at the end of the day, All the roads lead to Rome. All the rivers lead to the ocean. But you can be sincere about what you believe, just like you can be sincere about swallowing swallowing medicine to make you well. But if that medicine is, is poison, your sincerity doesn't really matter, does it? It does matter greatly what you believe. Another common belief is that to be saved, we must be good people. If we try to do our best, if we don't hurt anybody, if we help others, um, then we will get to heaven. And often faith in Christ is combined with good works. If we believe in Jesus and do the best we can, that combination is enough and that combination will get us into heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. As you know, the Bible teaches clearly that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Apart from our goodness, apart from our works, as Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us as we're going through in our home groups, as we are learning. But sometimes even those who know and believe this truth personally sometimes do not live it in terms of its practical application. And we see that here even with Peter as he struggled with this. For example, we may think that that God can save someone who is an, an infamous sinner, but that person first needs to clean up his life. He needs to first be a good person, and then God will save him. But to say that is really to deny God's free gift of salvation. And Peter and the other apostles knew that salvation is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, not by our good works and not by our efforts. But again, practically speaking, up until now, they also believed that to be right with God, a pagan Gentile had to become a Jew first in the sense of obeying the the Jewish laws regarding circumcision and the ceremonial issues. And the thought of a Gentile getting saved without coming through the door of Judaism was foreign to them. But as we've seen, God is breaking down Peter's prejudices, especially concerning these rituals and the Mosaic law. Now they are all swept up in an instant as the, the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, clearly they get saved and the Spirit of God falls upon them in the same manner as it did with the Jews on the day of Pentecost. So this here, this point that we are at in the Acts of the Apostles, is a very crucial turning point. For almost 2,000 years, since Abraham, salvation has been from the Jews. It has been through the Jews. A Gentile had to become a Jewish proselyte in order to know and to worship God In the way that God ordained. Gentiles had to come to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. In order to worship God in the way that God ordained. God had promised Abraham that through his descendants, all the nations would be blessed. But up till now, this blessing of salvation was pretty much bottled up with the Jews only. But now, as I said, a radical shift is about to take place. The door of salvation swings wide open to the Gentiles, and it does not require them to become Jews. And the wonderful truth is everyone who believes in Christ will receive salvation. So Peter's sermon and its results teach us uh, a few lessons. And we're going to look at the first point in verse 34 and verse Thirty-five. This is the introduction. This is Peter's introduction. And basically he teaches that salvation is not based on national identity or good works. So look again at verse 34 and verse 35. Peter begins his sermon by saying, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. So, in public speaking, we learn that a great way to introduce your message or your speech is to always accommodate a situation that's going on that everybody's aware of. So, that's what Peter's doing here. What is everybody keenly and acutely aware of? What is going on? Try and picture the scene, okay? Try and picture the scene. They're in Cornelius' house. They've taken the step, Peter and his friends have taken the step, and they are in Cornelius' house. But of course, the Jews are there, and on the other side are the, the Gentiles. <coughs> it's almost like two feuding parties sitting in the same room. The Jews didn't go into Gentiles' houses, remember, because they thought it was a, a defilement to go into a Gentile's house. So you can try and imagine the atmosphere in this house was, was probably very thick. You could probably cut this atmosphere with a, with a knife. At the beginning of verse 34, Peter realizes that atmosphere is there, and he opens his mouth. It says there in verse 34, Peter opens his mouth. Now, obviously, that's a little bit redundant. If you're going to speak, you need to open your mouth. So why does it say Peter opens his mouth? Well, the term there, opened his mouth, was a, was a popular expression in the Greek. And it means that that he was going to say something very weighty. He was going to say something very heavy. He had a saying he was going to um, speak that we know would shatter people's prejudice for centuries. And immediately he blasts his audience by saying, God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. So he's basically saying, let's get this out the way. (laughs) Let's get this off the top and out of the way. We're not dealing with nationalities here. We're not dealing with racial prejudice here. We're not dealing with anything like that. That's not the issue. Get rid of that, he says. He says, God is no respecter of persons. He says, and I'm beginning to understand that. Remember, in Acts 10, earlier on, Peter had a vision of this tablecloth that descended from heaven. And there were all of these um, foods on the animals that he could eat that he wasn't allowed to, to eat before. And he was learning what the Lord was teaching him through these visions. And Peter came to this conclusion that God is not partial to anyone on the basis of their culture, on the basis of their nationality. And our God could bring Gentiles directly into relationship with Him, apart from them becoming Jews. And we know this truth, this understanding, changed the world forever. And the application for us is that people from every racial and national background are on equal footing when it comes to receiving the gospel. Now, that may seem obvious to you, and we've been preaching that for the last few weeks, so that may be something that's not new to your ears. But before you make a hasty conclusion, let's let's examine this a little bit deeper, okay? I often ask this question when meeting people for the first time. I ask them, when did you become a Christian? When did you become a Christian? When were you born again? Um, and I have heard it, the answer to this, while I was in India, and I've heard the same answer even while I'm here in the UAE. People often answer the question, "Well, I was, I was born a Christian. I was born a Christian." Well, I know, and you know, India is not a, a Christian nation. The UAE isn't a, a Christian nation. But what people are meaning when they say that is, that they were born into a Christian family, that was part of a, of a Christian community. But I think we, we need to be careful of thinking like that. It's a very dangerous way to be thinking about a relationship with God. Now, just because you were born American, or just because you were born South African, or just because you were born Spanish, or just because you were born in Kenya, doesn't mean that you were born a Christian. Matthew, let me show you in Matthew chapter 3. Remember, John the Baptist, he is baptizing believers. And he sees some Jewish Pharisees and Jewish Sadducees come to the edge of the river to be baptized by them. And look what he says to them in verse 7. this, This is John the Baptist speaking to the Jewish Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. And he says to them, you brood of vipers. In other words, you snakes. I mean, they were hypocrites. They weren't godly people, they were hypocrites, pretending to be religious. And he knew that. And he says, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Look at verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Notice there the prejudice that John the Baptist identifies in the Pharisees who believed that they were God's children because they were were born Jews. To become a Christian, we need to be born again. Being physically born into a particular ethnic group or into a particular community is not going to change the fact that you were born a sinner in need of a Savior. While ministering as missionaries in India, we saw a number of other missionaries trying to convert unbelievers by making them embrace their foreign culture. That is, that is adding to the gospel. Like I said, you don't have to become an American. We don't have to become a South African. You don't have to be... British to become a Christian. You don't even need to sing Western songs. You don't need to sing Chris Tomlin songs. You don't need to even know English. Or you don't even need to dress like the Westerners do. Or you don't even need to eat Western food to become a Christian. What you need to become a Christian is to be born again. Well, how then are we born again? Well, thank you for asking. (laughs) Look at verse 35. Look at verse 35. Remember, this is still part of his introduction. He says, But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Still part of his introduction. Remember, Peter's prejudice was falling apart. And, And he says here, In every nation... Notice that. All classes, all ages, God accepts. What does He accept? Look there. Anyone who fears Him and works righteousness. That's what the the NASB version says. Anyone who fears Him and works righteousness. Anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Now, Now, there's two things there. Okay? Don't misunderstand what He's saying here. He's not saying that we are saved by works. That's not what He's saying. There are two things there. He's talking about the right attitude of fearing God. Um, and what does that word fear mean? It means reverence. It means reverence. He who reverences the Lord. And then he says, worketh righteousness. He's talking about a right action. A right action. So the right action, the right attitude. That's what God is looking for. And we know that in the scripture, James tells us in his letter, in James, he says, Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. There's got to be verification in the action that the attitude is real, that the attitude is, is genuine. Let's go back to my uh, wedding anniversary illustration I shared a few weeks back. Remember, it's your anniversary. And husbands, you wake up your wife. And you say to them, Happy anniversary, darling, I remembered our anniversary. You thought I'd forget, but I remembered it's our anniversary today. But you don't have a cup of coffee in your hand, you don't have any chocolates in your hand, you don't have a card in your hand, you don't have anything in your hand. And you think you haven't brushed your teeth. You know, you know. you walk up to your wife and in fact you've got your, your, your golf um, kit on you're ready to your go and um, you walk out the door and um, off you go your actions haven't verified your attitude isn't it? there has to be an, an attitude as well as, as an action that, that backs it up there's got to be verification in the acti- in the. In action, that the act, attitude is genuine. So again, what can verify that we have been born again? Or again, how can I be born again? Well, Peter explains it now. He's just he's just finished with his introduction, and now he goes on to the main theme of his message in verse 36 to verse 43. That's my second point, the main theme. And he talks about here: salvation is based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's notice a few details here from Peter's sermon. First, God takes the initiative in sending the gospel. Look at verse 36. God sent the word to the sons of Israel, preaching preaching peace through Jesus Christ. God sent the word to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Men may come up with different ways to approach or um, try and make God happy, but they all fall short. Only God can initiate the way of peace by sending His Son to this earth as the one who would bear our sins. And the fact that Christ preached peace implies that we were not at peace with God. It implies that there was some separation between God, who is holy, In man who is sinful, there is hostility amongst us, between us. And I think many people are unaware of this. They do not understand that that God is absolutely holy and that God hates sin. While they admit that, yes, they are not perfect, they are not willing to admit that they are sinful. They're not willing to admit that they are sinful. They see themselves as basically good people. While they admit that they aren't perfect, they basically see themselves as good people. They compare themselves with, with criminals and, and other e- other evil people and they conclude, well, you know, I haven't robbed a bank. I haven't murdered anybody. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. I'm not obviously wicked. But the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 verse 23, That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is why we are alienated from God. That is why we are separated from God. We are born into sin. We are born as sinners. And John says, if we say that we are without sin, we are calling God a liar. So there's the separation. and There isn't peace between God and man when we are born into this world. There is hostility, there is separation. James tells us in chapter 2 verse 10 that if we have broken only one of God's holy commands, we are guilty of breaking all of the commands. Those who think that they are righteous enough to enter God's holy presence are guilty of pride of the worst degree. I remember speaking to an older lady in India. Um, She must have been in in her 70s. And I asked her that question, have you ever sinned? Do you, do you think that you're a sinner or not? And she was a Christian. She claimed to be a Christian because she was born into a Christian family. And she had gone to church her whole life. And um, she had given ties to the church. Good person, she thought. And I asked her, have you ever sinned? And she looked at me in the eyes and she says, I have never sinned once in my life. <laughs> I sat down with her and I said, okay, let's go through the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Let's see what the Ten Commandments have to say about that. And she realized, actually, that she was a sinner. But I think she, like many people, she represents many people who don't think that they have sinned against God. They're basically good people. They've never hurt anybody. They've never stolen money from the bank. So, they compare themselves with, with wicked people. And they think, well, I'm not that. I'm good. God will accept me based on my goodness. Those who think that they are righteous enough to enter God's holy presence are full of guilt, are full of sin, are full of pride, really in the worst degree. So as we see here in the first verse, Peter is establishing that there is hostility between God and man. There is hostility between God and man. Even if you don't recognize it, even if you don't realize it, Jesus Christ is God's only way of bringing this divide closer to reconciliation. Notice in verse 36, Peter states plainly that Jesus is Lord of all. Notice that he's not just saying he's Lord of the Jews, he's also Lord of the Gentiles. And here Peter is uh, emphasizing Jesus Deity, that he is in fact God. Since the Lord is God, he, is ab- he has absolute authority. And this really ties into the end of his sermon where he states that, that God has appointed the, the risen Lord Jesus to be the judge of the living and the dead. So everyone who has ever lived will stand trial before the Lord Jesus Christ will judge every thought and intent of the heart. You know, we often make jokes about St. Peter standing at the pearly gates and people trying to enter heaven and St. Peter's there. St. Peter's not going to be there. (laughs) St. Peter isn't the one who decides who gets into heaven and who doesn't. The Lord Jesus will be the judge of the living and the dead. Look at verse 38. Peter emphasizes how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And he emphasizes this, this power. He tells how he went about doing good. And he was healing all of those who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, he says. Now the word Christ, which also means Messiah, is the word for anointed one. Jesus Christ was the anointed one in his Humanity, Jesus showed us how we as humans should live. In dependence upon good, doing good to others and overcoming Satan's oppression. And we know that there's this cosmic battle that rages on between between God and, and Satan. And to preach the gospel is to engage in combat with this with this evil enemy. And notice here what Peter's doing, he's, he's presenting the gospel, clearly. If you have gone through the, the booklet, what is the gospel, you will remember the, the four points here. He has told us about our sinful condition, and now he's telling us about the character of God in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 39, Peter uses the word tree, and I think he uses that intentionally. I think it's to remind us of the tree in the Garden of Eden that resulted in the curse of sin, the curse of sin over all mankind. It was because of that tree that we are now cursed with the sin that we have to deal with. So Jesus' death on the cross was God's means of making peace between Himself and sinners. That was the answer. That is the only way that there will ever be reconciliation between man and God through Jesus Christ Jesus paid the debt that we deserve and God took our sin and he laid it on Jesus the sacrificial lamb who had no sin of his own we saw that last week as we partook of the Lord's Supper Jesus didn't die for his sins he never had any sins Jesus died for our sins his substitutionary death is visible in the elements of the Lord's table. Jesus is God and His death has infinite value because He was a man and His death is the perfect substitute for the sins of humans. He was a man and He was God all at the same time. But as I said last week, if Jesus had died and remained in the grave, He wouldn't be coming back. And we wouldn't have anything to look forward to. And His death would not have been sufficient. His death would have been in vain. But He is not in the grave. Jesus has risen from the grave. Look at verse 40 and verse 41. It tells us, God raised Him up on the third day and proved His resurrection by making Him visible to certain chosen witnesses. Peter mentions that they ate and they drank with Him to emphasize the reality of His resurrection. He really did rise from the grave. He wasn't just, he wasn't just a dream. He wasn't just a, um, a phantom. He was a real. He was real. But it says in verse 42, this risen Lord Jesus is the one who God appointed to be the judge of everyone. Who has ever lived. The risen Lord Jesus is the one who is going to be the judge. And then Peter concludes in verse 43 with good news. He says, All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That is good news. That means we don't remain in our sins, that means we don't have to remain separated from God. There is a way that has been provided by God for us to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. I think the reference Peter makes here, everyone who believes in him seems to indicate finally that Peter's prejudice has broken down. Peter's prejudice has broken through these traditional barriers um, between the Jews and the Gentiles. And him saying this must have Encourage Cornelius and those in the house to be to be bold enough to think that they together with the Jews could receive the blessings promised to Israel. We know that happens. We see Cornelius and his whole family receiving Christ by faith. I think Peter's sermon offers a few applications for us this morning. First, we need to understand the basic facts about the life and the ministry of Jesus. Before we can share the gospel, we have to help people understand before they make a decision to repent and believe in Him. We need to help people read the gospels. We have to encourage them to read the Bible. There they will see and gain enough information to respond to Christ. Secondly, we, we need to stay focused on the person and the work of Christ when we talk to people about the gospel. We mustn't get sidetracked. And it's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? When we can end up talking about evolution, and we can end up talking about predestination, or we can end up talking about some a moral or, or social issue. But we need to remember the most important fact, we need to stay focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Keep bringing the conversation back to who Jesus is and what what Jesus did on the cross for us. Jesus is the issue. Jesus is the answer. Thirdly, if we want to adequately proclaim the gospel, we need to Help people understand the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that He is Lord of all, and that He is coming again in judgment. Notice that's what Peter does. He lets his audience know that Jesus is Lord, whether they believe it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, that He is coming to judge everyone, whether they like it or not. Now these people realize that they have been in rebellion against God, and this They see themselves as sinners. They won't have a need for a Savior. What have you been saved from? What do people need to be saved from? Not our bad marriages. Not our bad jobs. Not our bad relationships. Not our bad bank accounts. They need to be saved from their sin. They need to be saved from their sin. If we scan over the bad news in an attempt to make people happy, they might try Jesus for a while, but because they haven't been told the full picture about their sin and about the lordship of Jesus Christ, when the when the going gets tough, they will reject Jesus. They won't be willing to endure. Hardship for Jesus, they would be willing to endure persecution for Jesus. And the reason is because they have made an image of God in their mind, an idol of God after their own making. And rather than them bowing down to the Bible revealed to, to the God revealed to us in the Bible, they they are worshiping their own God. So let's not be guilty of that. Let's not be guilty of watering down the gospel, but being faithful with it. Just like Peter was here. And we see the results. We see the results here in his sermon. And here we see the conclusion in verse 44 to verse 48. Salvation results in evidence of faith. And here the chapter closes with the record of Cornelius' conversion and of his whole household. And I believe his household were part of his, um, his servants and, and his children, and I believe his children were of age where they could understand the message that Peter was preaching, the sermon that he was sharing with him that day. I don't think there were little infants there. Because we see they all get baptized. They all respond. They understand the gospel. We see this middle wall of separation is now being torn down. No longer stone by stone, but rather with the sovereign and gracious wrecking ball of the gospel, this wall, this dividing wall, is being broken down. Verses 44 to verse 46 is a a spectacular record, a spectacular demonstration of genuine conversion. A wonderful picture for us to see what true conversion looks like. What we have recorded here is really the Pentecost of the Gentiles. The Pentecost of the Gentile world. We looked at Pentecost earlier on. Remember in Acts 2, the the Holy Spirit was poured out and the Gentile converts, they began to speak in tongues. This was now happening here in Cornelius' home. This was again a unique situation. God gave this miraculous sign to the Gentiles. So That the Jewish Christians would realize that they were on equal footing. That they were no better. And as I said before, this this, this gift of tongues was not a, um, a, a gibberish utterance, an ecstatic utterance. But this gift of tongues was speaking in a foreign language that the speaker had not studied before. Now the people could translate. This was evidence. This was further evidence. That there was no longer any distinction between the Jews and between the Gentiles. And the crowd here in Cornelius's house, remember, made up of Jews, made up of, of Gentiles. And it tells us the Jews in the house in verse 45 were astonished. They were astonished at the outpouring of the Spirit. Which was now clear to them. It was clear to all that Gentile believers were accepted by God through Jesus Christ in the same way that Jewish believers were, without the need for the Jewish mosaic rituals. I'm pretty sure that the word of, of this encounter would have traveled far back to Jerusalem. Um, in fact, even Peter himself says this. If there was any question back in Jerusalem as to Um, What is going on with the Gentile believers? This report effectively would have wiped out any of their their doubts. Any of their doubts. In verse 47 to verse 48, we see the spiritual unity of the Jews and the Gentile believers. And it's a wonderful picture. A picture of unity. This unity was already a reality because of the gospel. But in the closing verses, we, we find two practical evidences of this unity. Gentile believers were identified as the genuine deal, the real deal by by these two things. Notice what happens. First, there was baptism. They were baptized. Peter immediately recognized that baptism could not be withheld from the Gentiles. They were entitled to be baptized just like the Jews were. This was essential. This was essential. And here we see the fruit. Here we see the evidence of the Spirit that had been clearly manifested in their lives. That they could no longer refuse um, refuse to be admitted into the fellowship of the saints. They were now part of the body of Christ. But notice also that there was unity in their brotherhood. There was unity in their brothers. They had just been baptizing Cornelius and his household. What do they do? They open it up to to Peter and his friends. And it tells us in verse forty-eight. Peter entered into sweet fellowship with these Gentile converts. He was happy to identify with these believers as his brothers and sisters in Christ. And all the barriers had. Come down. Peter accepts this invitation and he probably stays with them and eats their food. And their food wasn't Jewish food, it wasn't kosher food, but he ate it anyway. God's grace, as is clear both from this chapter and throughout history, is for every people group on the planet. I pray that God would give us the grace to reach every race as we aim to be more obedient to His great commission. I pray that the Spirit of God will show you today from this portion of Scripture what a change God makes in our hearts when we are born again. And if you have not been born again, or you are not sure and you want to know more, And I encourage you, be like Cornelius and invite me to your home this week. I'd love to show you from the Bible how you can be saved. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we look at Peter's message. It's not complicated, it's really not difficult to understand. We are alienated from you, and we need to be reconciled. That's what it comes down to. We are born in sin, and we need a savior to save us from our sin, to save us from the judgment and the penalty that awaits us for our sins. And when we think of that sobering thought today, we think of our family, we think of our friends who are not reconciled to you. And I pray for them today. Lord, that you would help us to be faithful with the gospel. Help us to be faithful in proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful in sharing that we need to be saved from our sins. That we are indeed sinners. Even though we may be good people, we are still without Christ if we are not without the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I pray, Lord, please help us. Give us the courage we need. Give us the faithfulness we need. To be speaking clearly the gospel to our loved ones this week. And to our friends and to our work colleagues. That still may be in essence. Lord, I pray this morning we've had a lot of visitors come to New Life Church. I pray if there are people, these visitors, who have not heard the gospel before. Or are still not sure whether they are saved. Or maybe they are guilty of thinking, while I was born a Christian... That means I'm a Christian because of my my parents. but I pray the word today would have shown him otherwise. And that the word today would have shown him the need to get right with you before it's too late. Before you come to judge us. So Lord, please, may your spirit do the work that needs to be done in our hearts and everybody's hearts here today. With regard to the gospel. May your word not fall to the ground. May your gospel bear fruit for your glory, Lord, and may your kingdom come. We ask this prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen.